Welcome to Think Like a Penguin, The Art of Flying. This is the podcast to help you think outside the box, live more confidently against the grain and become your more authentic self. Penguins don't traditionally fly, but what's to say they won't one day? Just before I start with playing this episode, a couple of things. Firstly, apologies for the background noise from around five minutes to 10 minutes. There's a long announcement at the airport and I couldn't get away from it, but persevere and it does disappear and quietens down the rest of the episode. Also, a little bit of a warning, please be aware that I talk about some really hard-hitting subjects. I am talking about the turbulence of mental health and some challenging experiences that I went through throughout the last 10 years. So um, if that's going to upset you or be a little bit overwhelming, I do do talk about sexual assault as well. Um, Please be mindful of that before you start listening. But I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Okay, here I am, part two. Excuse the noise. I'm currently sat at the airport, ready to leave Bali. And I've gone to the quietest place I can find. My flight is delayed. I got to the airport early. I was predicting an hour and a half traffic kind of travel time. It took about 10 minutes from the hotel. So four hours to kill. What a perfect time to do part two of my story. And hopefully the sound quality is okay because there's a lot to discuss about the start of my journey in Australia and then what has got me to this point here. So I arrived in Wyndham, that's one of the most northern towns in Western Australia. I was 24, I went to see a friend who I'd recently, oh sorry, previously met in England. So she was doing a trip with a mate just for a few months around Europe. We met at a friend's party and Kindred spirits, had a similar outlook on life, wasn't really interested in partying or having a wild time, just wanted to travel and um, she basically offered if I ever wanted to go to Australia, just message and so I distinctly remember the day I was in Wales, I just finished rugby training, it was raining, I was cold and I saw STA which were a travel agency at the time, I think they've since folded but they had a flight deal to Australia. And I thought, wink, I'm just going to wing it and go with the flow. And I messaged my friend and she, when I met her about seven years before, was working in Melbourne. She was working as a teacher. And what I didn't realise was that she was still working as a teacher, but now in one of the remotest parts of WA. And she'd been there for a couple of years. So got in touch. She was super happy. She said, yeah, absolutely. Come to this airport, Kununara. And... I will pick her up from the airport and it'll be a few hours drive then to Wyndham. So I didn't look on the map. I didn't really have any sense of what I was arriving into. After about 40 hours travel, I think it was four flights, finally arrived in Kununara. She picked me up. We drove to Wyndham, which is essentially one street, one street that leads to the ocean. It was my first exposure of seeing indigenous people. So I'd never seen... um, First Nations people before obviously have a different complexion, um, look quite different and they were mostly sat around underneath boab trees and that was such an eye-opener for me. I'd never learned about it or heard about it. So I had a couple of weeks in Wyndham. We went to El Cuestro. My friend was used to be a ranger at the resort the year before. She'd done a season so she knew all the best spots. We just camped in a swag and by the river. I didn't realise until afterwards just how fortunate I was to have that experience to um, go to up the Gibb River and and experience Equestro Resort because that's on a kind of a lifetime list option for most people in Australia absolutely exquisite and beautiful and my friend got a puppy at the same time and we just explored went to the gorges and had an awesome time and then I think the night before I was supposed to leave back to Wales back to the UK I just really didn't want to. I was in a very unhappy point in my life. So I decided not to. I decided not to get dropped back to the airport, not to get my flight home. Had no plan, but I knew that I just wanted to stay in Australia. So 
I then googled cheapest flights and I think there was an offer to Perth so I then jumped on a plane to Perth didn't know anyone in Perth stayed in a hostel the first night actually I stayed at this this man's house who I met on the plane he seemed lovely I'm a good sense of character so I could tell he wasn't too dodgy so stayed there that was around um, Lake Munga and then he dropped me at Beaufort Street hostel so then I had to figure out what on earth was I doing. I couldn't get any money from my UK account because I wasn't there in person to sign it out. I had, from memory, a couple of hundred dollars and that was it. So I needed to get a job. I was at the hostel and I saw that there was a job on Seek for a lifeguard on Rottnest Island. So there's a water park, just a kind of inflatables uh, day water park. I had never done my lifeguard qualification, I'd never worked as a lifeguard, but I went to the interview, I walked there from Beaufort Street Hostel to Kings Park, which was about a two hour walk, not really knowing where I was going. Knowing me, I probably didn't have Wi-Fi or connection to internet, so I just followed my nose, got there, did this interview, that was on the Wednesday, got the job on the condition, obviously, that I became qualified. So I did my bronze medallion on the weekend, just so happened I could find a spot. Again, I walked from Beaufort Street to the place they were doing the qual, that was in Perry Lakes. So I think that was like a four hour walk, and then someone lovely dropped me home back to the hostel afterwards. Got my qualification. On the Monday, I started work on Rottnest Island. So it included living on the island we did sort of five day stints on the island and then a few days off and then back so I guess it was a five and and two days off I can't remember exactly it sounds idyllic but for me I was in a really bad headspace I was very lonely very depressed probably still clinically depressed it was a shock to me that you had to pay for medication so for the last 10 years before I came to Australia I was taking sertraline which is an anti-anxiety antidepressant drug and I relied on that for my to stabilize my mood and the fact that it wasn't free made me think well stuff it I'm not gonna pay so I stopped taking any meds the island itself is obviously if you you know the island you know it's mostly a holiday destination but that means that most people who are there aren't there living full-time. So I found it very hard to make friends. I also don't drink. Apologies for the announcement in the background. I was hoping I wouldn't be under a microphone. I just keep plowing on. So I... Oh, gosh. Maybe this isn't going to work. Anyway, I was at Rotto. I don't drink. I don't really do the party chilled holiday vibe when you're not in a good headspace it's really challenging to relax and feel good in your mindset so certainly wasn't in a happy space and I ended up quitting the job after about three months during the time and I'll talk a bit about this in this episode that when I was when I was in the first few years of my just trying to find myself in Australia I relied on people and I'm not proud of this but I relied on people that probably I was in a relationship with that I shouldn't have been in a relationship with and I'll never I won't name names and I'm not going to go into detail but there was someone that I was conveniently in a relationship with that enabled me to then use their accommodation when I wasn't on the island like I say not proud of this and I was very young and vulnerable and in a bad headspace so not cool she was actually in a relationship with someone who was on a secondment for a few months and that was a nasty shock when this woman came back from her secondment so the first couple of years I actually ended up living in 14 different places really stressful because I wasn't in a great mindset and I can really empathize with people who aren't in a good headspace or have mental health issues I just couldn't fathom doing a nine-to-five I couldn't imagine getting a job in a cafe or a bar or a restaurant I needed to be busy I needed to be distracting my mind I felt very depressed to the point of tears so I just felt really unable to hold down a, a regular job to make some money to then rent a really lovely place so in terms of accommodation options I always seem to find myself 
in a really bad negative spiral. One guy was a bit of an alcoholic. He was in the army reserves. He had a gun collection. One time I came home and he was um, masturbating in broad daylight at lunchtime. I was coaching lacrosse at this time. I walked in and he was just going for it with the porn on the TV. And uh, obviously that was super awkward. He kind of was so drunk that he tried it on with me. It took him ages to react and to kind of stop doing what he's doing and put some clothes on. And I obviously had to leave that situation. Um, other situations, I stayed somewhere and paid a huge amount of bond up front most of my savings and then I had a friend coming from Wales to stay and the hour before I was going to go and pick her up I was told I wasn't allowed to have guests even though it was supposed to be my house so lots of turbulence lots of moving all over the shop lots of feeling really vulnerable and I can really understand and empathize with people that just can't see the wood through the trees for whatever reason life's become stressful or hard and they just become caught in this spiral of negativity anxiety uncertainty vulnerability and you start to make silly decisions or ill-informed decisions or decisions based on just being taken advantage of and this is certainly true of my second year so at the time and I think it's similar I had to do 86 days regional work to qualify for a second one-year visa so I went to a place that turned out not to be a farm, super dodgy. I think the owner got arrested for schizophrenia in the end and for, well, obviously she's not going to get arrested for being schizophrenic, but she got arrested for dodging the system. So she didn't pay us, she didn't provide us with accommodation. And as a woofer, which means that you go around farms and you volunteer your time, you're meant to be provided with payment or at least board and lodgings. And she didn't do either. But because we were so vulnerable, there was a few of us on this farm that wasn't really a farm in 2J, we were so scared to go to the government or go to immigration and complain about the situation because we didn't want to get chucked out. So again, it's absolute exploitation. She managed to get away with making me do all sorts of insensical, nonsensical, excuse me, things. Um, one day she asked us to move a whole pile of honky nuts go around pick them up from one side of the field to the other and then the next day we had to move them back again another day she asked me to do a massive trench down the sides of her path leading up into the property and then the next day she asked me to fill it in so it was just really stupid bonkers nonsensical stuff that she got us to do bittersweet after 32 days her boyfriend um, I assume that was what his role was, who's about 70 something, came into the shed as I was getting a tool and shut the door and basically made sexual advances at me. And I was obviously very distraught and I started screaming and, and saying, I'll call the police, call the police. What he didn't realise was I had no reception when I was at this place, which I drove to every day. And um, he said, no, 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 don't call, don't call. I'll, I'll sign your papers, I'll sign your papers. And although I got away with only doing a few, uh, sorry, 32 days, what was absolutely horrific was that the process to get the papers signed was so easy. My heart broke the fact that I'd gone through 32 days of living hell to get my second year visa and I could have just forged it. Obviously, I'm not condoning forging. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but it was just a little paragraph, the date we started, the date you ended, the location you did it, send it in, got my second year. So I was so furious that it was just such an easy process that I could have just botched and, and got a second year. Also part of that experience, which I think back now and I just, I still can't believe this happened, but they had a random um, property in Yokine that was an asbestos filled house that didn't have a back on it. So it was open to the element, so that it had no back wall. My job was to clean bricks. I've got photos of the sending photos back home and my mum being really obviously concerned because as a Western 25 year old, 24 year old woman, I should not be chipping bricks 
on a pile of rubble living in a house without a back to it that's full of asbestos that was like a squatter's kind of situation. I was on a mattress. Um, ugh, all these things were hoops I had to jump through just to get to the next step. So getting permanent residency, getting citizenship became my mission, became my absolute goal. And I did whatever it took. I never lost sight of the goal. And in hindsight, I put myself in really dangerous situations and went through a huge amount of stress, anxiety. Um, I got really ill with chronic fatigue about a year and a bit later. I'll come on to that. But I think it, to my credit slash detriment, if I get set on something and I, I'm stubborn in wanting something, I will do whatever it takes. So horrific some of the stuff I went through in my first couple of years but I wasn't going to lose sight of the goal and based on my past I felt like I'd gone through so much and I'd overcome so many challenges that the other the new challenges I was facing although very different were manageable and I could I could do them so off the back of um getting my second year visa I then Sorry, people just arrived. It's just thrown me. I've got some notes. Um, oh, yes. My next sort of lesson for when I arrived in Australia, money wasn't really a consideration. There wasn't really a talking point around money in my family. We weren't really taught money at school. I went to a very affluent school because I'm dyslexic. I uh, went to my parents sent me to an all-girls private which really helped absolutely was integral to me getting some good grades and learning to read and write and helping with my education but we never learned money it was just assumed that you would have money or you wouldn't have money so when I first arrived I went to a um, footy club Titans football club and I haven't told anyone this but I left the training and burst into tears when I was obviously not around anyone because I saw everyone had these new cars and I could not comprehend how people who were 20, 18, you know, super young, their first car was new. And I thought, what have I done in life? Why am I such a failure? Why have I just failed everything? This is so embarrassing. And it was only, I think, a few months later that I realized they'd got this car on credit or they'd borrowed money. And I didn't know that that was a thing. I had never heard of being able to borrow money to then spend it like a loan. Um, and still to this day, I've never had a credit card. But if only I had known sooner that I was entitled to be able to get out a credit or credit card, it would have made my first few months in Australia far less stressful. Uh, I've never bought a, a car on credit. I've never bought anything on credit. If I can't afford something, I don't buy it. But that was a huge lesson for me that Australia seemed to live way beyond its means. So, so many people seem to purchase things that they just simply couldn't afford. Um, everyone's trying to keep up with the Derringer. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And I didn't, I needn't have been so hard on myself because these people hadn't in their own right worked hard enough or managed to save the money to buy a car and that wasn't a reflection of me being a failure and then being somehow more successful or better so the narrative of me being useless and a failure is something that I have struggled with my whole life even to this day I still have to talk to myself kindly and say for god's sake Livy you've done well like just give yourself a break because I still struggle with comparing myself with other people. But as the next kind of 10 years will show, Perth is a very small place and I have ended up working for the wealthiest family in Australia and I've started at absolute bottom at a hostel in Beaufort Street and somehow ended up um, here in Bali waiting to board a flight back to my beautiful life in Perth. So after the the kind of lessons with the cars, money, relying on people, feeling uncomfortable relying on people, um, recognising that my mental health was not in a great spot. I It all just got a bit much. It all became too challenging. So for my whole life, I had run away 
well not my whole life but post anorexia I'd been running I hadn't really realized it at the time but went to Africa went to America twice went to Canada went to India I was teaching in various countries I was never able to stay still because I was running from myself I hated myself I was in a lot of pain I couldn't kind of let go of the issues around eating I still had binge eating disorder when I arrived in Australia so I was still relying on finding food taking food eating too much like a lot of issues with my food and relationship with food so I was in a really unhappy place I then left back to the UK and it was very evident that I even though I couldn't quite put my finger on it I wanted to live in Australia so it took about a year and a half for me to realize that I wanted Australia to be home and the I think on a subconscious level the challenge of trying to get permanent residency or later on citizenship was a really healthy focus so it's a, it's a good challenge that I could put my mind to so I returned to Australia to do a uh, massage qualification so remedial massage it was closely linked to my PT and it bought me, if you like, two and a half years. So it gave me time, bought me time. The course itself was $24,000 to do, free, if you are a permanent resident or you're local. So TAFE basically just gifted people a diploma in remedial massage for two years. That became a really sticking point when... The us internationals um, were working really, really hard. You weren't allowed to have one day off because then it was deemed that um, you weren't properly attending your course. So there was a 100% expectancy to be there constantly. We were only legally allowed to work 20 hours a week. And as part of a massage qualification, we did 200 hours volunteer or 200 hours training, so practice. So we'd give 200 hours worth of massages. What absolutely infuriated me and still upsets me to this day was that fairly, but inconveniently, they would change the day that we had to do our volunteer 200 hours. So it would be maybe a Wednesday night and a Saturday morning or a Tuesday night and a a Saturday afternoon. The problem is I was working as a personal trainer and I had got a really good job with HBF and I was running the boot camps that are free for, I think at one point we had 500 people at one location and I was the head trainer running this thing and I would get a couple of hundred dollars for the morning, which was my rent for the week. So that was absolutely necessary. I was obviously doing this full-time course. I was um, working whatever hours I could, but every term they would change the timing of when we did our 200 hours. And I'm not proud of this. There's many things I've done that I'm not proud of, but we went into class. They just pulled out names from a hat and they were like, okay, um, Liv, you're going to do Saturday morning. And to me, I just felt like there were so many challenges in the way and it was it seemed near impossible to be able to get citizenship, get residency, PR, make sure I could afford to live, afford to pay rent, pay myself. I was only making about $500 a week, which if you live in WA, you know that's not a lot. So I had to pay for rent, food, didn't leave much for anything else. And I punched a wall. It was, I was distraught. I was hysterically crying because at this point I felt like I was fighting for two and a bit years just to remain in a country, just to make ends meet and just to live. I felt like I was a rock bottom. And to know that and that same week a lady had complained that she had to purchase the books and it was $80, I remember, $80 for these two books. Um with all the illustrations and the muscles in them. And I lost it. I was like, are you fucking kidding? Like the reason we're paying 24,000 is so that you can get a free spot. And obviously I didn't swear at her and I didn't say this to her face. I said it to student services, but just the inequality and the unfairness of it all absolutely drove me over the edge. And that's something I've always lived by is I do have privilege guilt. I do appreciate that I am one of the most privileged people on the planet. I'm white, I'm healthy, I, I don't have any disability, I have my, um, like a healthy family, I have love, I've got 
financial means now. I've got so much that puts me in a privileged position, but I do struggle when there's unfairness and when someone's complaining they need to pay 80 bucks but they're living at home and they get a free two-year course and someone else is working their ass off trying to make ends meet just to stay in a country really really upset me anyway managed to get through the course managed to get uh, the qualification the qualification itself was easy as it was frustratingly easy I was so bored it couldn't have been more um under challenging, underwhelming, and that was a really annoying part is that we were expected to sit in the lectures. Whilst I was doing my qualification, I got a job working as a massage therapist for the Scorchers. So they're the cricket team out of Perth that do the Big Bash. I also got a job at um, a massage clinic in Subiaco, won't know names, but I worked for them for two years every weekend six-hour shifts, back to back to back to back, so not even a break in between the six hours. Um, seriously grueling, and at this point is when I started to really get chronic fatigue. So for me, that presented as just fainting daily, just passing out at any given point. Usually once, twice a day, I would just faint, just collapse. I had nothing. I was empty, absolutely void of energy, and I suspect that was because I had been obviously malnourished, um, emaciated, pushing my body to the limits for about five years. Then I had binge eating disorder. Then I was training 25 hours a week as a rugby player, only a couple of years post being anorexic. Then I was working every hour I could, trying to play sport because I knew that was so important to my social life and my mental health, trying to do um, a diploma, trying to stay in a country, not knowing if every week every month I wouldn't be able to afford rent or I wouldn't be able to afford the course or I'd be sent home or like it was I was so so stressed that I started to um, show that physically so a week before excuse me two weeks before I was meant to go on to a working visa so off the back of my course I'd arranged and agreed and signed a contract that I would be able to do a course uh, sorry, a um, visa with the massage clinic, they pulled the plug. So they said, no, your health is is not what we need. I, I get that 100%. I was definitely a liability because I passed out at work a couple of times. Um, we're not going to take a risk on you. We don't think that you have it in you to work six-hour shifts. All of this was true. But that meant I had two weeks to come up with another plan, else I would have to leave the country and all of that investment, energy and stress would have been wasted. So I then just essentially walked around different clinics and introduced myself, put on a brave face, said, look, you don't know me, um, but I really need a job. I need sponsorship. I need to stay in the country. Can you help? And an amazing clinic in Bicton, Life Ready, said, look, we don't actually have a uh, space. We don't have a massage therapist. We haven't really offered that. We just offer physio, but okay, we'll take you on. So <laughs> I think it was about seven, six days. I can't even remember. It was within the last week I got a job. And amazingly, the way that the immigration kind of system works, it's crazy how simple it is when you just put in the right paperwork there are so many people trying to apply for residency and citizenship that i actually the the, the day-to-day was super stressful but as soon as i got my application in each stage i had an immigration officer as well so that gave me kind of extra credit it was a breeze like i i wish i did not stress so much they didn't even check how many hours I was working. I was actually only working part-time because that suited the clinic and me. And it wasn't illegal. It just wasn't ever checked up. And, and for the better part of seven years, I was constantly worried. There's background anxiety that somehow I was doing something wrong or I wasn't ticking the boxes or that I was going to get deported so I could never settle I could never really put down roots I couldn't buy a house I could I felt like I couldn't like really establish myself or invest in any way really 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 stressful so the the first kind of seven years until I got um residency was just the most stressful time of my life 
post anorexia or probably to be honest matches it but just in a in a different way one thing that kept me sane was my friends I had an absolutely beautiful friend who was British and she took me in and I had Christmas with her I think the first three years unfortunately I'm not sure why we've we've parted ways she moved back to the UK and then um sent a message filled with a lot of anger and upset and she doesn't want anything to do with me anymore I'm not sure what's happened there but I will always be grateful for her family and her and her hospitality and just making me feel less alone and also I've mentioned lacrosse and playing sport I constantly say it to the club I don't think they quite realize just how important being a part of Wembley lacrosse club was for my mental health there's been episodes where I've need to call on them that one of the coaches there she's a works in mental health and even two years ago I had a wobbly moment where I was in a very vulnerable headspace wanted to jump off a bridge and um yeah the two coaches actually really came to my rescue got me some sleeping pills checked in on me constantly um I'm indebted to Wembley lacrosse and sport and just how much being a part of a community a healthy community has saved me and helped me and enabled me to establish myself in Perth so <laughs> rocky start I remember driving a car that was $400 it only had one gear stick and one seat the, just the driver's seat it was just an empty chassis uh, it was a little bit embarrassing rocking up to work um, as for work I had nine to ten different jobs all of this was prior to having chronic fatigue and in and around that time over the last few years I've always had multiple jobs on the go but at the, at the most I had 13 different kind of contracts so I always worked for myself interestingly I've never fallen into a role except for one where I've been employed so it wasn't until I was 33 that I was got my first full-time proper job if you like employment other than that I've just worked for myself I think because I have felt I needed the control I needed to call the shots whether that's helped me in the long run or not I'm not sure but um I just can't imagine being a bossed by anyone and I found it very challenging when I had my my full-time job which I will come on to so it's all a bit over the place I guess my life at the time felt very all over the place I broke up with a couple of people uh, moved in with different new people what I did do thanks to a tennis friend she forwarded me details of a course that was basically called life design so looks at all aspects of life emotional um, financial spiritual mental physical and it was a two-week sorry two-day course initially just in Perth but just a little taster and it really resonated with me I thought yes I need this and then there was a huge investment of about three thousand dollars just for the course not the flights to go to Sydney so to repeat the um, same kind of thing but on a much more intense scale it was at um, DY Beach just um, near Bondi and uh, five o'clock in the morning we'd meet we do some exercise or six or something super early and then we worked on life and all aspects of life um, up until about uh, eight o'clock at night super exhausting for a whole week I then backed it with doing my own qualification as a life coach I think now looking back I felt at the time I was ready to be a life coach absolutely I wasn't now I would say I am um, but I still use the learnings from that course, both personally, from the life design, but also the life coaching qualification. I still use those um, things and activities and skills to this day in various jobs that I do. So that was life-changing, um, incredibly insightful, eye-opening. A lot. I took so much from that course. One of the main things I took was at the start of the week, we were told one person would win six uh, or seven thousand dollars I can't remember the exact amount or maybe it was ten I think at ten thousand dollars and throughout the week I could hear various people going how do I win the money tell me how da, 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 da. so desperate so fixated so like conscious on this money getting their money back obviously I was thinking oh my gosh this would be incredible but 
I didn't really know how to do it. Like, no, they didn't tell anyone how we were going to win this money until the last day. And they said, right, I think everybody needs to know how they can win this money. And everyone sat up and was like, engaged and yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, whoever you believe from this week deserves the money, that's who we're going to give it to. So essentially, it was just a people's vote. And obviously, you couldn't go back and change how you behave throughout the week. Um, long story short, I was gifted the money with somebody else, which completely covered all of the cost of the week. So essentially, got that whole experience for free. That was incredible in itself. But what I broke down in tears, because what it showed me was that for whatever reason, I had been seen, appreciated and valued for just being me. I was actually really vulnerable that week. There was a lot of tears. I was still um, struggling with fainting a lot. Had a few moments. I even got, they had to call the ambulance once because I passed out over the balcony. It was all a bit dramatic. But the fact that they, a room full of relative strangers, hundreds of people had given me money just because I was me was so much validation. And it was just what I needed because for about a decade prior, I wanted to end my life because I felt guilty for taking up um, air and for taking up space on the planet. So that was so transformative for me. So over the next few years, I really started to find my stride. I, I re-established myself in my many, many, many different jobs. So I did a lot of remedial massage in clinics. I did it privately. I did it for the scorchers. I also started to sell my art. So a beautiful ex-partner um, suggested that I get a little studio space and I stayed at um, her house. In the end, I ended up getting an old caravan and converted that. And it was the missing piece of the puzzle that I absolutely needed was to be able to get creative again. And that was really insightful for me because I could use my level of creativity as a guide to show me how I was mentally. So if I wasn't painting, drawing, creating, it was a sure sign that I wasn't in a good headspace. If I was painting and drawing, it was usually when I was in a happier headspace. So I started to force myself to create, to kind of like fake it till you make it, to, to nudge myself back into a better headspace. So that was really, um, really important. And if you know me now, and if you get to the end of the podcast, you'll realize that that um, set the tone for the rest of my life up to this point. So I am now a full-time artist and art therapist. But I don't think I'd painted post doing my art degree. I don't think I'd been creative properly for about five years because I was just in survival struggle mode. So I was doing lots of painting as well and doing personal training, still working for HBF, had private clients. I was working at PLC, so that's a school here. One thing I did do when I came off the island was Google wealthiest schools in Perth. Um, sounds really basic, but it made sense to me. And I emailed all of the wealthiest schools in Perth, which essentially are on the west coast um, near the beach, and said, hey, this is me. Pretended that I had my shit together. Had my crazy little old car that was $400 that um, was older than me, actually. It was amazing. But um, anywho... PLC said, yeah, cool, we'll take, we'll take you on um, f with your offer. So I was offering just in-house personal training. So bespoke kind of <clears throat> PT for athletes or for anyone that wanted to do it. It started at two times a week, just in the mornings. And then it actually ended up every single morning. And then afternoons was for staff. So it really grew. And then I ended up being their... Um, PT working in the wellness suite that they have. They've got a huge building, a four-story building they call the Lighthouse, which is an incredible wellness space. So over the course of the years, I just remained. I even did a stint as an um, art technician, which was a joke because it was like um, a cleaner. I am the most messy person. I was the worst person. I was just covering for someone who was pregnant on maternity leave. And I think I did that... Um, much to everyone's dismay for nine months. Oh my gosh, that was terrible. But um, yeah, juggling all these things, it all came to a head when I were, it was so 
so unmaintainable in that I, my day looked like this. <clears throat> I get to PLC to work in the lighthouse at six, six to eight in the morning. That was manning the gym and helping any of the students out. I would then go to um, the art department, so just walk across the campus, and that started at eight. So eight, so no break. So walk straight there, eight till four, and um, terrible at that job, sorry, BLC. And then I would go back to the lighthouse and do the four till six, so after school shift. Then I would go to um, teach art for a company, Cabernet and Canvas, which is kind of that paint and sip concept usually 6.30 till 10 and I'd repeat and that was a 15 hour day for uh, just about a year, just under a year and obviously that was completely ridiculous, not able to maintain. Some people can work and I'll tell you a bit about my next employer, why some people can physically do 15 hour days for their whole life. For me, off the back of chronic fatigue, off the back of the stress, the back of um, just the life I'd had leading up to that point, it was just not possible to maintain that. So I did start to get ill. I started to sleep wherever I could. They even had a sleep suite in the um, lighthouse at the PLC. And I remember texting the art, the head of art one day saying, I'm so sorry. I, I physically cannot keep my eyes open. I'm going to have a half hour nap. And that was in a work day. So I was burning the candles at both ends. It was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, still passing out a couple of times, not every day, but just collapsing um, kind of a weekend or I'd be out and about. It was kind of when I was slowing down a bit, my body would just go, yeah, nah, we're done. And I'd, I'd pass out. So I think when you're in it, and this gives me a huge amount of empathy for people that are workaholics or people that I just go, 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 go. My current partner now with four children, who's a lawyer, who plays sport, who has a partner in me. And I just, I can see so clearly how it's not um, something that's sustainable at all. And um, it's only through living that experience myself. And it's awful to say this, but it's never a surprise to me when someone who's immensely hardworking or they've got a huge amount of balls in the air or loads going on in their life that they suddenly have a heart attack. The body is an incredible tool. And if there's one major takeaway I've learned over the years is that the body is there to help keep us alive. It's our, it's our portal for our soul. And the body will do whatever it needs to do to give the person the message, the life lesson, give the person what they need. So there's a reason why if you're overworking, you get sick when you relax and have your holiday because your body is trying to tell you to slow the f down. Um, there's a reason why you might break a leg if you're overtraining or you do your ACL because your body's saying, whoa, hang on, please. Like you're pushing my body to the limits, stop. So I've got a real appreciation for, sounds strange, but being sick because it's actually your body trying to get you to do the right thing usually sometimes it's not but usually um so yes that's a big takeaway I, I have gained from pushing it way too much and doing way too much in the last um 10 years oh my gosh it's been 10 years since I arrived in Perth so that skims over very quickly oh I will just mention lacrosse so I trialed for the state team I was in the Welsh squad way back when, in my early 20s, I think, whilst also playing rugby. Never made it onto the pitch because I just wasn't good enough. And yeah, essentially, it's not good enough. But um, I did believe I was good enough for the WA squad. And I trialled, but was so mentally unwell. I was in such a bad headspace, so clinically depressed, um, anxious probably suicidal if I'm if I'm honest with myself um I was so lonely I felt really embarrassed just to be I felt really shy I could tell there was a really beautiful community click like a real cool vibe between the lacrosse girls WA is so small if you play lacrosse you will know everyone else that plays lacrosse it's just the way it is it's so tiny here it's beautiful but at the time I was a little nervous wreck so I was I actually got into the squad, but I had to pull out because I was so upset. I was just so nervous and anxious and just mentally wasn't able to turn up 
and, and represent. Off the back of the life design course I did, I put a goal. We did a lot of goal setting, like a five-year plan. It was incredible. I set a goal to represent WA. And of course, I got there because I was, I was able to turn my mental health around and absolutely loved it. Went to Melbourne, represented at the same time as, I think it was the same year as the World Cup. So England were touring, um, New Zealand were touring. Incredibly, I cannot believe this, and it, it still makes me smile to this day. I played against one of the England players who was the head girl at my school in the UK. She, I think, has represented England longer than any other player, or she certainly... She represented when I was at school and then fast forward to when I'm 27, I think, 28, I can't remember now. She was still playing for them. So absolutely amazing. Um, Alison Smith, I will shout out Alison Smith. I had a proper crush on her as well through school. So um, amazing that I got to play against her. Literally, she was my opposing position in Melbourne, representing the state, um, on the other side of the planet from where we're both from. It just blows my mind. It's amazing. So all these things that I was, I was kind of like, there were hurdles or battles or felt completely unattainable when I first arrived in Australia. Through the power of changing my mindset and becoming mentally well, suddenly seemed attainable, suddenly seemed completely possible. Other things I've done is bought a house, um, written a book, there was a weird phase where I felt like to be successful, people did stuff. Like there was a list of things. So people in my book, it seems so ridiculous now, but I genuinely wrote a list of what I thought successful people did, aka self-publish a book, buy a house, um, buy a car, to have a two-year relationship, all these things. So then I just kind of went about trying to tick off the list which I did but obviously I was just doing them to do them I wasn't doing them to experience them to to live through them to gain from them it was a very bizarre feeling but you have to remember that I came out of hospital at the age of 16 17 as an absolute blank canvas I didn't know what it was to live I'd had to kind of kill my former version of myself I didn't know what a healthy relationship was I still to this day struggle with boundaries in in regards to getting too close sharing too much expecting too much from friends um I didn't know what was kind of quote-unquote normal healthy what people of my age did didn't do like the whole of my 20s was about trying to establish what it meant to be me uh, I think that's a problem that a lot of people have throughout their whole life, to be honest, way into their 50s, 60s. Fortunately, I did it kind of on turbo mode. So by the time I got to my 30s, my aim and my focus, so I'm 34 now, I think, I had to think. I think I'm 34, 33 or 34. Um, my focus intentionally is work. So my absolute priority is now work. In my 20s, I worked on myself. So a hundred percent my focus was self. I hope that in my 40s my focus will be family. Um, I'll get on to that but there are four children currently in my life. So it's um yeah it's been a huge learning curve doing the juggling act, trying to find myself whilst trying to establish myself in a new country, whilst not knowing anybody. One thing it might be worth mentioning is that I don't drink. I never have drunk alcohol. And going out when you don't know a single soul, when you're sober, when you have to literally just introduce yourself to strangers at a nightclub was probably the hard, one of the hardest things I had to do. But the first day I arrived, I walked down Beaufort Street to my amazement. There was a gay bar. Not that I'm like only into the gay scene. I'm not really your typical gay that jumps feet first into gay land. But I saw um, the nightclub the gay bar, the name has escaped me. Anyway, went in there and introduced myself to a lovely couple in the line and they were there for a um, event for breast cancer, actually, a straight couple. But that essentially was my social experience until I joined the lacrosse club and until I became a little bit more established into the world that was Perth. I just had to just throw myself out there and say hi to people which when you're not in a great headspace and you don't value yourself 
uh, and you feel like you're taking up room on the planet is a really hard thing to do. But I knew that for my well-being, I had to just jump outside my comfort zone. And to be honest, doing that means that then chatting to anyone becomes a breeze. Now I've, I'm, I'm, as I said at the start, I'm in Bali. I'm just at the airport waiting to leave. I've been traveling by myself for 10 days and had the most wonderful time. So lots of lessons learned and I'm not sure that I'll get them all in, but it's more about just kind of putting down the random life that has been the last 10 years um, for me since arriving in Australia. So here I am doing my crazy long hours, unsustainable, apologies, um, lifestyle and I get a call from a friend who is applying for a job to Australia's wealthiest family. I think it's Australia's wealthiest man potentially. She wants to be their wellness specialist and has asked if I can help her brush up on her skills for massage. So she's an incredible exercise physiologist but not much experience in massage. So she came to mine, I think we did three hours, three practice massage. I gave her some tips, told her you know, to cut the nails, um, she lifts weight, so soften the hands, don't massage in this part, go harder in this part, all the tips that I thought I could help her with, having been in the industry for six years. And um, she got the job, fantastic. She then noticed that the job was still being advertised. She then put my name forward for the job. And I remember distinctly thinking, oof, I wouldn't want to be going for this job because I'd have to be on call 24-7. I'd have to be available to another family. I wouldn't be able to continue doing the things that are so important to me, like my sport. Um, I was in a relationship at the time. I just felt like it wouldn't suit me. Anywho, after a month of negotiation, after trying to go to the bank actually to get a loan for a mortgage and being turned away because I was self-employed and considered too much of a risk, I thought, right, I'll just do this job so that I can get a, <laughs> get a wage, get a mortgage and experience it because what a random, random opportunity. One thing that has happened is when I seem to put all my energy and effort into, into doing something, I seem to just get to the top. So I've massaged the um, New Zealand team for cricket. I've massaged at the World Cup for the women's cricket. I've massaged the Scorchers for five years. I've PT'd um, as a head PT for 500 people at once. I've always managed to kind of land on my feet and because of this and because of that trust and knowledge that it usually kind of works out, I thought, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. So I accepted this job, worked for this family, incredibly eye-opening. One thing that I really struggled with, which sounds bizarre, is and possibly goes back to my um, problems with boundaries, is that they were so lovely and normal and quote-unquote not wealthy in... I don't know, it's not a quote, but I, they appeared just so regular and I really struggled because I saw them every day, would go to their house, would travel with them, would see them at their most vulnerable, see them having just normal family discussions and, and, and I saw that I felt like I was part of their every day so that I also struggled with remembering that I was an employee so for some reason, if they were like Russian oligarchs or an Arabian prince and, you know, they, they had this glorified kind of existence of mansions and super yachts and blah, 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 I probably would have been able to strike the balance better between being more of a professional employee than a friend. But because I would just like go to their family, get hideaway or, you know, have lunch sometimes with them or I, I worked with the parents as well who were elderly and see, saw them and just have like a cup of tea or like a sandwich or whatever with them I found it very challenging and I even saw them I think Christmas Eve New Year's Day um yeah so I'm not going to go into too much detail around the job because of confidentiality I'm not even going to say who the family are what it absolutely taught me is what I already knew was that I'm not great at being um, 
an employee. So when I wasn't working for the family, I would go into the offices and I would offer wellness. So I don't think I said what the job role is. Um, it was a wellness specialist. So my role was to do massage, personal training. And I also thought I could add value or, you know, more to the role in that I would just be really friendly, be con um, a counsel to anyone that needed a chat. I ran stretching classes, fitness classes at the offices. I would just try and de-stress situations, make sure I was on hand to be someone to chat to if they needed, just try and be a happy person in and around the office and the family and do silly little things like put smiley faces on people's desks or um, offer a desk massage or um, just offer to take go for a walk with someone if they needed a chat, whatever. Because there's a lot of people in a lot of stressful jobs working for this family um, and I saw it as my role to try and de-stress the situation. There's a reason I've never worked in an office. I find it personally quite toxic for myself. Obviously, others thrive in that environment. I am an introvert and I really struggle being around noise, people, and not being outside. Harps back to being in the hospital for two years and physically feeling trapped inside like I was in a prison. So I really struggle to be in an office all day. So I was always in trying to encourage people to leave the building. One initiative I did, I just called it No Lifts No November. So try to encourage people to use the stairs instead of the lifts. I realized if I put little riddles or jokes or pictures up on the stairs, maybe that might encourage people, you know, the question at the bottom and then the answer at the top would encourage people to use the stairs a bit more. But um, that wasn't quite hitting the mark. So I decided maybe I could do a mural. Maybe I could do a whole painting up the side of the stairs. Asked the family's permission. It was taking months to kind of get an answer. And my usual style is just to go ahead and worry about getting told off afterwards. So I thought, fuck it, wing it. I'm just going to go for it. Um, but instead of me doing the painting, I invited the staff over the course of about three weeks all the different departments. Um, I think there was maybe over five, 100 people that helped out in the end to paint these life-size, realistic whales, turtles, whale sharks going up the stairwell. And that activity really informed my direction. That got me thinking that this is what I want to be doing. That I got so much joy out of doing that. Um, along with the fact that I'd already struggled with the boundaries. I'd been spoken to a couple of times around being a bit too familiar, a bit too colloquial, a bit too friendly. I really struggled. And uh, a comment was made to me by um, the head of the family. He, he said, I really love your passion. I really, really love your passion around what you're doing. And I have to be honest, I think a lot of the time I was putting on the passion. I was obviously trying to show enthusiasm I, I do everything with as much enthusiasm as I can. But deep down, I knew that for me, my passion really lies in creativity. And I went through a breakup and I did a walk. It's the Cape to Cape. I did it in five days because I had to be back for a um, work thing. And the most physically challenging thing I've ever done because I carried all my stuff. I actually did three days without shoes on because the blisters were so bad. I carried all my water, but I rationed my water in case there wasn't an enough. I got sunbeaten, I was exhausted, I cried every day, I was heartbroken, because recently after a breakup. And then shortly after, I still had a bit of leave, I went to an art retreat. And it was really just a lovely location down south who um, they lease their property, they have a farm and they lease it out to artists to just use the space to create. So there's no like structure, it's just you must create some art whilst you're there. I actually painted the five stages of grief over the five days that I was there. And a culmination of all these things, doing the stairwell project, thinking about what I'm really passionate about, struggling with um, just being a little bit too relaxed and couldn't quite get the vibe right with the family and um, just wanting to be more creative with my with my time and also by this point I've been working for over a year 
just being on call and feeling like I was constantly, it was like a juggling act between trying to do my own training, trying to do my own sport, trying to fit in social life, relationship. It all just needed to come to an end. So I was asked to resign, which was an absolute blessing. At the time, I was a little bit peeved, obviously, but um, I couldn't be happier with... I'd gotten my mortgage, so I'd bought a house. I'd experienced all there was to experience. It wasn't going to change from that point. I traveled. I'd had some incredible experiences in the private plane, in the helicopter, on the yacht. I've done these amazing things, but I, it was ready. I was ready. It was time to, to move on. So then I gave myself one year. I said, right, this is it, Livy. Your 30s is about work. You've got all this experience. You've gone through all of these challenges. You've got an established social life. You're healthy. You're happy. You've got a house. You've got savings. I'm in the absolute best point I will be in in order to be a full-time artist. So there really wasn't any excuse. And I knew that if I didn't take the plunge into a full-time artist at that point, then I probably wouldn't ever so really scary because obviously the narrative is you have a starving artist and you know how you're going to make money but I decided within the year I would do everything that I thought being an artist was so selling art teaching art um, doing murals being an art therapist oh, I had prior to working for the family I'd, I'd gained a qualification as an art therapist so that was a diploma as well so one thing I love to do is constantly learn so usually I just do things of interest and then it just turns out that they kind of turn into work options. So just adding more strings to my bow. So prior to um, my full-time job, I was already a qualified art therapist, hadn't really done anything with it. But I, I realized this year of art was an absolute luxury, a little bit like when I went to university and it was so indulgent, just doing three years of art whilst playing rugby. It's a complete waste of time, but also needed and... Um, necessary for me so that was good so I was prepared to live off my savings I thought if I didn't make a penny it didn't matter I had enough for a year to um, live off my savings and practice or try being an artist so I threw myself into everything I had a private exhibition I continued to teach art art therapy um, selling art doing murals and from that I knew that clarity would come and the answer would reveal itself of how I would be an artist because there's so many ways to be an artist so now I absolutely know how I am an artist at this point in time in my life I'm a mural artist but I also do art therapy and I've combined the two I have artworks by Liv and my aim for 2023 is to be in the regions go into remote places and within the Perth itself, but offer community designed and um, implemented murals around local buildings or around the community. So get people from the community, better if they're First Nations people, if they're indigenous, amazing. If not, no worries. But go to councils, go to the shires and say, I want to run a mural project. I want all the people to get involved who want to. I want all of them to pick up a brush on the day. They're going to design the mural and then they're going to put it on the wall because the power that creating and seeing your creations gives to someone is extraordinary. That to me, absolutely, I believe, contributed to saving my life. Making a mark and seeing that mark every day as a reminder of your value and your worth is so empowering and brings people together obviously the the image itself can create um, a message and it can display something really important to that community and so that's my main focus I'm also going to be doing a book for the right reasons so it's going to be illustrations of um, wisdom so kind of a metaphor each illustration will be a wisdom um, a little point like letting go of the past or um, surround yourself with people that you want to be influenced by. You are the product of the five people you spend most time with. All these things. So they're going to be, it's going to be an illustrated book of like wise life quotes. Um, and I'm also going to continue doing my murals, which I'm loving. So 
here we are. We got to this point. It's been a hell ride I've gone through living in an asbestos, like, junky house to um, doing all manner of horrible jobs, having incredible experiences working for national sports teams. Um, oh my gosh, and everything in between. I've had some dodgy relationships, I've had some beautiful relationships. Now I'm in a wonderful relationship. But navigating being a stepmom in part, I'm not, I'm not gonna call myself a stepmom, but having four kids in my life because my partner has four kids, um, that's the new challenge. But 100% I'm gonna focus on empowering, educating, and inspiring others to be the best version of themselves in a creative way. And that is me. Thanks so much for tolerating the noise of the airport. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you need to, get in touch because I don't feel like we communicate enough. I think there's too many assumptions made. There's too little conversations had. And the power of a conversation is incredible. You never know where someone's at. You never know what answers you might get. You never know what viewpoint you might get through just having a chat with someone. That's certainly something I've taken away from this holiday is just appreciating how different and how wonderful that is so many people are. So even at a hotel, looking out across the balcony and observing people, we're all so different. We all have different experiences. We've all walked in different shoes, but we can all learn from each other and connect through our differences. So get in touch. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. I hope that it has shed a little inspiration in that you can be in a really shit, hard, dark place and then end up on a $100 million um, private jet off to a lovely location with a beautiful family <laughs> for work. Um, yeah, life will always turn itself around. First, we have to look inwards, work on ourselves, and then we can start making our outside um, a better place. Okay, I'm out. My plane is not yet here, but let's hope that's at least killed an hour. I've still got three to go. Thanks, guys. Bye.